welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter Munley. And we are here with you on this beautiful Friday, unless you're listening on Saturday or at another day of the week. It's always Friday on Close Talking, man. Weekend's always around the corner here. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we have another great poem. And before we get into it, as always, we have a simple request. You can pull out your phone, get out your computer. It's probably easier on your phone. Rate us. Give us a little five stars. Write us a little review. It really means a lot. It helps us get new listeners, and it makes us feel really good. We are very grateful to everyone who does it. And, yeah, that's all i got to say except for everything I'm about to say. And we've got a wonderful poem by the poet Charles Wright, who is one of the many titans in the American canon. Born in 1935, Charles Wright has won basically every major poetry award. He's won the Pulitzer. He's won the National Book Award. He's won the Griffin Prize. He was Poet Laureate. He has, I think, literally 20 collections of poetry. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he has a new one forthcoming in November of this year. So stay tuned. This one, called Clear Night, is one of my favorites of his. And it is from his earlier selected poems called Country Music, which came out in 1982. I think it was first published in The New Yorker in the late 70s. It's really, I need to do more reading about this. This is just kind of a strange thing that I learned when I was researching. But um, so he has three books in the his early career that are a trilogy. Then he has three books in his like middle career that are also a trilogy. And then he has another three books that are also a trilogy. He has literally a trilogy of trilogies. And Charles Star Wars right over here. I know. Seriously. And I don't know what to make about that. But without further ado, this is Clear Night. Clear Night. Clear Night, thumb top of a moon, a backlit sky. Moon fingers lay down their same routine on the side deck and the threshold, the white keys and the black keys. Bird hush and bird song. Acacia flower falls. I want to be bruised by God. I want to be strung up in a strong light and singled out. I want to be stretched like music wrung from a dropped seed. I want to be entered and picked clean. And the wind says, what? to me, and the castor beans with their little earrings of death say what to me, and the stars start out on their cold slide through the dark, and the gears notch and the engines wheel. This poem is crazy. It is. I think it's like 
it's a pretty anthologized poem of his. I think I first encountered it in college in a poetry class. And it's one of those that just like, I'm going to say it right off the bat. I don't even know if I completely get what's going on here. Yeah, but I don't know that I have a good handle on it either. Yeah, but it's just so... Something about it is so intense and cool that I just keep coming back to it. Like, it's one of those few poems that I just think about randomly without provocation, just, like, for years. I think that makes a lot of sense, and particularly those last two stanzas. So we should say it's broken into three stanzas. Yeah. The first stanza, the lines are all different. In the second stanza, they each begin, I want to be. And then in the third stanza, they all begin, and the... Which makes yeah. it, you know, we were talking about his trilogies of books. It's almost a trilogy within a poem, it feels like, which I think is probably part of why it feels a little hard to pin down. Um, I don't yeah. know if you think there is a little bit of a quick narrative overview to this of any sort. We could try to do it. I think our failure to do so might be illuminating. Okay, we got our three stanzas. That's very important. The first stanza is kind of like speaker. It's a clear night. Basically describing what's going on. He's like sitting outside, the moon's out, there's some birds, blah, blah, blah. More to say, but it's kind of like establishing the scene. Then the second stanza is a series of, as you were saying, I want to bees. And there's kind of like a very, hard to say exactly, but there's a desire. They all have this desire to be like hurt or kind of like abused in some way, I think, you know, being bruised by God or being stretched or being entered. And then the third stanza, we sort of return to the scene of the first stanza. We get the wind and we get castor beans. So we're thinking about plants again and the, in the night, the stars starting out, but it's almost like the night is responding to the speaker's desires that came in the second stanzas. Like, and the wind says, what to me is like, what? <laughs> or something. I don't know. I think as you were saying, each stanza I can kind of like make sense of sort of on its own, or at least kind of get what's going on. But together to fit the three stanzas together, it becomes more of a, a struggle, but that's kind of like how I was thinking of the, the basic narrative. I concur with your assessment. And I think it, you're very right that each stanza on its own feels more cohesive than when they're all put together. But when they are together, they do still feel like they're all in conversation with each other so that it's not like, I'm wondering why are these all three here? I'm just thinking more like, well, what does it mean that these are being rubbed up against each other? What am I supposed to get out of that collision? I think that's really right. It reminds me a little of, you know, there's been a number of poems where we kind of have these like gaps. I think the first one that we really started talking about it was the To Make a Prairie, Emily Dickinson. Um, another one where we talked about it was like Nursing Home, which had three sections. And there's kind of like the poets like put these all in the same poem and put them next to each other. So our mind is like, okay, they're all connected and related, but there's either, you know, there's either like, it doesn't, it's not clear what the connection is, or they're like contradicting each other, or they're just in a totally different direction. 
and so the kind of space between the stanzas I feel like is where the poem is both its most difficult but also like where it gets its you know its juice then it's kind of like you know where do we start (laughs) it's just such a yeah like part of me this is gonna be because I have I think I, I have some readings at least I hope to that are more satisfying but I also this is one of those poems and I'm usually irritated by people who say this where it's like it doesn't matter what it means or like it doesn't matter if you don't get it like it's just beautiful or whatever da 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 usually I'm like all right but you know it's got to be doing something specific what is it doing and this one is like where I come closest to feeling like okay with like not exactly knowing what it's doing partly because the language is so striking and vivid and like precise in its own way like the imagery of the first stanza i just find like very beautiful you know clear night thumb top of a moon and then this kind of like description of light as a sort of musical like first the moon fingers like the moonlight rays are like fingers playing piano kind of um moon fingers lay down their same routine on the side deck and the threshold the white keys and the black keys so we get this piano it's like i just find that that's just so cool and then like bird hush and bird song acacia flower falls the rhythm of those those two sort of short fragments coming after that longer sentence which is like also the only part of the poem that has a sentence that's more than one line you know every every other line is its own discrete sentence except for the moon fingers lay down their same routine on the side deck and the threshold that gets to two i'm like i could just like live in the scenery and the music of the first stanza and then i think the second stanza is just like i mean it's very intense and like kind of disturbing but like its description of desire for like bruised by god is probably the most general or like not general but you know when you bring in god it's a big term but then there's this it's just like it keeps going in these different like what does it mean to be strung up in a strong light and singled out like i don't really know what that means but it seems like I can imagine something being strung up and there being a strong light on it or something and like being stretched like music rung from a dropped seat. I don't really know what that means. But at the same time, I don't know. It's just so cool, I guess. And then I find the third stanza just like sort of funny, but also like intense. Just imagining the wind saying what is funny and the caster beans, which as a side note, I had to look up castor beans because I was like, what's going on here? But they're beautiful plant, but they're seeds, which are called beans, even though they're not true beans, are very poisonous. So I think they are the earrings of death. I don't know. I guess, like, I'm just curious of just anything where you were floating in this poem because I remember in college a lot of people in the class were irritated by this poem because because it just didn't make enough sense i guess and so anyway i'll stop talking (laughs) (laughs) rather than being annoyed by this poem i am excited about it 
<laughs> that might be my own issue, but that's sort of when I was reading it, it was one of those you sometimes I think have that feeling when you're reading a poem where you're just like, I don't know, kind of it's energizing to read because it's doing so many different things. And like, yeah, I don't think I have a great handle on it or anything, but I kind of like that because as you were saying, you can come pretty close to just being in the poem and enjoying that. Uh, The first stanza started off and had me hooked right away because I recently, with my dad, went on a road trip to Mont Magantic, which is in Quebec, and it is a dark sky reserve. And it's a place where you can go and they've made very concerted efforts to try and lower the amount of light that is being put into the atmosphere. So they change the types of light bulbs that are used in the towns nearby. They also created different kinds of lighting so that there is an upward facing light from the town and it has helped return the sky to where it was at this point about 40 years ago and they're hoping to continue darkening it because there's a large observatory there but also just generally there is a push to be more aware of the light pollution that we're putting into the world because the amount of light on the planet is going up and up and up and up and up and so we're seeing less and less of the sky. I'm in New York City right now. Can't see stars in New York City. Just doesn't happen. And so there's this International Dark Sky Association. They've got dark sky reserves, parks, communities, sanctuaries, a whole bunch of different things. But anyway, reading that first line, I'm like, yes, awesome. Dark night, lots of stars, thumb of a moon. I'm in. I'm into it. I like this. I have a recent personal experience I can kind of liken it to where the natural night lights are prominent and doing stuff and get you into that sort of, I don't know, poetical frame of mind, right? I thought that was pretty cool. And then you get into these next two stanzas. And as you were saying, like, anytime you bring God in, it's a big deal. But also, I want to be bruised by God is so, like, human and bodily and down to earth. It's like the most immediate invocation but it's also this slightly violent to me it felt like i'm in this natural place and i'm having these thoughts about this you know moon and it's moon fingers and the birds are singing and then they're not singing they're singing a little bit again and then like a flower falls down it's very it's this great kind of like perfect scene for poetry this brilliant clear night and like you can almost see someone sitting in that and thinking like oh I want to have a spiritual experience right now. Like I want whatever my concept of God or spirituality is to come and visit me right now and just hit me over the head with some kind of insight or meaning or feeling of profundity. And like, yeah, I want to be lifted out of the chair I'm in. And you can almost see, I just talked about Harry Potter in the last one, but I'm going to do it again. (laughs) But like, there's this moment in the sixth one where one of Harry's classmates puts on an enchanted necklace and she's like lifted up into the air and she's suspended. And you get that sense of like strung up in a strong light and singled out like one of the stars in the sky suddenly intensifies like a spotlight on you and you're lifted up almost like a tractor beam and you're like in the presence of this divine sky and you're being bruised by God and you wanna be you know, stretched like music wrung from a dropped seed. I don't know where to go with that necessarily. Maybe like come to life in a new way, blossom like a tree would be stretched out of a seed over time and the music from the seed is life itself and you want to be full of life and pulled up in this light and then you want to be entered and picked clean, like have all of the dark parts of yourself stripped away in this divine light as God bruises you towards salvation or whatever. And then... Woo! You're kind of brought back to earth and like the wind comes and is like, what? And then you notice that even the beautiful castor beans 
have poison in them and they're like dude nature's not all that like it's not fun and games out here like that antelope that's sick it's gonna get eaten by a lion my friend you know <laughs> african hunting dogs are successful 80 percent of the time they go on a hunt this is not fun and games nature this is this is some cold shit and oh cold the stars start out in their cold slide through the dark. Like, that's not romantic. That's not exciting. That's not warm. That's not a strong light to be singled out in. That's almost mechanical. Oh, mechanical. At the end, the gears notch in the engine's wheel. Where are these gears and engines? We've been in nature the whole time. And now we've got gears and engines? So where I'm kind of thinking about this is like this demystification of the like theoretically transcendent natural experience to something a little bit more down to earth maybe, but also equally if not more profound by trying to integrate those two views and seeing this experience of a clear night as having a little more totality. Um, I think there's also a reading where you could see the gears notch of the engine's wheel as like all of this is being described and that last moment is like the gears of the poet's mind beginning to turn this experience he just had. I say he because it's Charles Wright's poem. But like the gears of the poet's mind turning to then write this poem about what just occurred, which is like this kind of interesting experience and reflection on being in this clear night. And then I have a separate thought about Star Wars for later. <laughs> wow. I love that. I am 100% in for that. Um, yeah, that second stanza, the clearest other poem that the second stanza reminds me of is there's a pretty well-known poem by John Donne, who was a poet in the early 1600s. So like sort of around the time of Shakespeare-ish English Renaissance. And there's one that a lot of people read called The Flea, but he did a lot of that's like one of those famous Carpe Diem poems that's kind of like, we're going to die, so, you know, we should have sex or kind of thing. But he has this <laughs> other poem. <laughs> one of I those mean, old chestnuts. I mean, it's, it's so weird that that sort of became one of the prominent canonical genres that people learn in high school. But at any rate, one of my favorite poems of his is one of the what's called like the holy sonnets. And uh, the first line is batter my heart, three person God for you. And then the second line is for you as yet, but knock, breathe, shine and seek to mend that I may rise and stand or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn and make me new which is very intense, but that kind of that first line, especially batter me three person God, which kind of like the Holy Trinity type vibe. It's like ex in the exact same lane as I want to be bruised by God, where it's this desire could be read, you know, as some kind of like sadomasochistic desire to be, you know, ravaged by God or something. But there's sort of this parallel. It's interesting how, how you are putting it this kind of like being so like totally enraptured by some divine or transcendent force, you know, which I think it, what I think what's interesting about both of those lines and what you're talking about is I think what's common is 
that what you are describing is like wanting to be like taken over by the divine or like to be, you know, or like I was, you know, uh, I was in the concert and I was just like totally like overwhelmed by the music and like I lost myself. Like there's a very like common everyday, not everyday, but like description of that kind of feeling or desire for that kind of feeling. But this it's like a kind of like one or 10 steps beyond that, where it's like taken what's sort of implied in being like overwhelmed or seized by God or by the divine or the transcendent and sort of made more explicitly violent, I guess. Um, getting back to what you were saying, it's there's like two ways that I can see the poem just like progressing, where like one is speakers in this sort of beautiful natural environment and then you know wants to be sort of seized by the transcendent that's kind of like embodied in that environment or present in the natural world or something and then is sort of like as you were saying brought to demystified um, which i think is a good word in the third stanza there's also i think the multiple readings is sort of allowed by the total like lack of connective tissue between these stanzas and so some some part of me thinks that it's like the stillness of the evening that maybe the speaker has just this desire this either like either it's a more purely desire for some kind of transcendent but bodily experience or it is a kind of like masochistic desire to be kind of hurt in some intense but also spiritual way that kind of just like suddenly comes out in the speaker it's like allowed by the peace of the night that like you know because sometimes i feel like when i'm like the everyday it can often be so busy that like your interior life is sort of drowned out and sometimes it's only in these moments that are still or quiet or clear that whatever's going on in the interior some just has space to like jump out and sometimes it's like sometimes it's either just intense sadness but sometimes it's kind of like sort of weird so part of me thinks it could also be something like that and then after that nature sort of reasserts itself and is like that's like that it's not really our vibe <laughs> dude <laughs> you don't get it uh, at all yeah you don't get it at all you know one of my poetry teachers in college had said because i in my early years was writing a lot of poetry that um worse than not accessible i mean just no idea what was going on it's just and, super good and you're still really proud of it no, no, quite bad, quite bad. Um, and she kind of was like, there should at least be like one element of a poem that's like immediately sort of accessible or tactile or tangible to the reader. And then that will draw them in to like rereadings and kind of maybe uncover sort of the other elements that are, you know, weren't sort of apparent uh, on the first reading. In fiction, clearly one thing that's most accessible is the narrative, right? That's an element. And there's also a lot of narrative poetry where you can sort of follow a speaker and a story and a conflict throughout. And here, to me, it's it feels like the image is like what's immediately kind of present. But that can be a little harder to piece together because uh, it's like looking at a series of snapshots or 
photos like in a line and you have to, you know, there's no voice telling you how to connect the dots kind of thing. Your professor's advice of like have at least one thing that people can sort of latch on to. And I think that's what this poem does so well with that first stanza, because even though it's very, I mean, poetic in the way that it describes a scene, it actually does set a scene for you to then leap off in all these other directions. And that's actually something that Hunter S. Thompson talked about, because he wouldn't necessarily write his columns in order. The way he'd often start himself writing is just to start describing the weather wherever he was. Because that was like the easiest thing to start off with, and then you're starting and you're rolling. And that part might end up getting cut, or it might move to like the middle of whatever the piece was that he was writing, but oftentimes just to get himself going. And that is a similar, like, just something super concrete. It's not necessarily for the audience, but this is something for the writer of like to get yourself going and writing, but also to give yourself something to latch onto when you have all the ideas kind of buzzing in your head. For both the reader and the writer, I think having one clear thing in everything you write is like a great piece of writing advice. Yeah, it's been very helpful to me because sometimes I do, like we talked about last time with the Grimke poem, Tenebris, how, you know, there's like good ambiguity and bad ambiguity. Yeah, what you were talking about, it reminds me just another example the first stanza is almost kind of like what you know a long shot at the beginning of a movie where you're sort of grounded in the scene and you like like i i was just imagining reading this poem if the second stanza was the first stanza it'd be it'd be totally bad like so like a horrible poem i think because it would just be like someone the speaker telling cuz there's so many questions that you could ask about Okay, I have a sentence, I want to be bruised by God. Who are you telling this to? Like, are you telling the reader this? Are you just proclaiming this to the cosmos? Is this like, you know, is this a monologue kind of thing? If it was at the beginning, it'd be this like, I guess like I would imagine it being like a one man show, like I'm going to bear my heart to you, which isn't necessarily bad, but is, I think, bad if it's a just a poem and it's like so if you have a one-man show and you just have the words of the one-man show it's like oh yeah yeah or like you read the lyrics of a song and it's at best boring and it's at worst cliche but then when you have the elements of the voice and the music and the instrumentation and how they're inflecting it and da 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 like it all works because those elements situate the words right and the first stanza, it feels like a really important situating to that, the moment in the second stanza, where you can see the speaker like kind of by themselves, like on the side deck or whatever at night. And then maybe you don't know exactly like where in the speaker this these wants are coming from, but you sort of know where the speaker is when it's happening and you know what's not happening. Like, you know that this is not like a proclamation from, you know, the stage and something like that. It's like kind of like an intimate, private desire, I guess. And those sort of, it's sort of hard to describe, but even if you don't quite get the second stanza, like, like you don't quite, oh, that this is referring to this kind of thing, all of those things that you're brain is able to rule out because of the first stanza's framing is like 
really, really, really essential to the power that can come from the second stanza. That would be like totally gone. Because like I want to be bruised by God. That's like the first line. Because that line by itself is like maybe way overwrought kind of thing, you know? Like, I could imagine myself writing something brooding like that in my little journal as a 15-year-old or something. Heck, Um, yeah. I'm pretty (laughs) sure I wrote something a lot like that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Maybe even read it in front of other human beings at some point. Yeah. Because that is... You're you're totally right. I mean, both the first and second line of that stanza, I want to be bruised by God. I want to be strung up in a strong light and singled out. It's like... But as you were saying, because of how that's been framed and built around by that first stanza, yeah, if that was the first stanza, I want to be bruised by God, I want to be strung up in a strong light and singled out, you start, as a reader, you kind of glaze over because it's like, too much, too fast. I can't, I just can't with this. (laughs) I just... Yeah. No, I... I agree. And then I think the, the third stanza performs a similar function... You know, what you were talking about, like demystifying, but also like sort of in terms of the craft, it has a skepticism about that feeling. And to give credit, I don't want to. Here's here's where I in making fun of my old high school writing self. What I don't want to make fun of and what I think is genuine and worth attending to are the feelings that people in high school and people throughout their lives have. And I think that is the overlap that this poem in some ways has with something, the hypothetical writing that I may or may not have put in my journal as a high schooler, is that there is this intense emotional desire or something. And what this poem does differently is it's not like, you know, like the impulse of the high of the quote unquote high school writer is like, I want to just share my raw feelings with the world or something. That's like the stereotype. And this is more interested in like reflection on not just like getting those feelings out, but like, what are those feelings like? I don't know. There's like all sorts of dimensions to emotions that poems can get at. Well, and that's what so much of poetry craft and writing craft generally is about. It's about how to convey the way you're feeling in a way that other people can understand it. It's not, you know, a lot of it has to do with that idea that there is potentially an audience and you're, you know, getting quote unquote better as a writer means something different for everyone because what you're getting better at is like communicating your thoughts and feelings through the written word, which is the craft element. And, you know, that means that, you know, you don't put a a phrase like I want to be bruised by God first because maybe that's how you're feeling but nobody else is going to be receptive to that feeling if you hit them that hard out of the gate with it you have to create something around it and that's what's so good about this is that like there is that attention to craft wrapped around those as you were saying like the feelings at any age any feelings they're all valid feelings but you have to figure out how you're gonna present them in your poetry or your essay or your you know, fiction or, you know, even in nonfiction books, like you care about a subject matter, you have to figure out how to get other people to care about it too. You can't just write really dryly about something that you're passionate about. No one else is going to understand why it matters to them. You have to figure out that element of the written craft. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because it really is, 
you know, it's about access and it's, it's about opening the door so that another person can step in. And like, if you think about it in simple terms, like the phrase, I love you or something like that, when you say that to someone, you know, someone in your family, someone you're in a relationship with, you and that other person share a history, you know so much about each other, you're already in the same world. You know, there's so many pieces of information you and them already know. So when you say something simple like, I love you, that actually means something and they can access that as like a very powerful statement. Whereas if you read a poem that was just, I love you, it's like, it doesn't mean anything necessarily because the reader has only I love you to work with. Because I was realizing, you know, I don't, I think there is this craft and it can be talked about in a way that is a sort of excluding of people or that it's like, this is good stuff and this is bad stuff. And it's just a matter of like, what's proper poetry versus like what's not proper poetry. And to me, that's not what's actually at stake. It's more in the earnest endeavor of trying to communicate something meaningful or vulnerable or whatever to potentially a complete stranger. The craft of a poem is the only way it can ever be done or close to be done. And so I find this poem so interesting I think now that I'm thinking about it, because it has this element of really potentially raw and overdone expression that in many other contexts, I think, could be read as bad writing or early writing or some, something. But because of the way it's crafted, I think it gets it gets that raw stuff across in a way that is really, really hard to do. I think in addition to that, the way that that first stanza is written could possibly seem overly written or overly flowery, but because of the intensity that follows it, I don't necessarily get that sense even when I'm just reading through it the first time, but because of the intensity of what comes after it, it sort of justifies the setup. So even the part that's being contextualized is then sort of throwing back on that first part of saying like, oh yeah, there's a reason that it had to sound like that. There's a reason that the scene had to be set that carefully and intensely, because this is where we're going. Yeah, that's a really good point. And as just the last little uh, frosting on that point, the and the wind says what to me, and the castor beans with their little earrings of death say what to me. The like say what to me is such a anti-poetic kind of move. Like it's so undercutting. And, you know, as you were pointing out, there's like the first two stanzas are very potentially overdone in different ways. The first one has per potentially poetic over stylization or something. The second stanza is potentially over emotional or whatever. And the third stanza with its kind of like anti poetic language and undercutting is like, you know, it's a little bit of lime that, cuts through the spice or whatever uh, nice. in the proverbial <laughs> dish. <laughs> That's about all I know about cooking. That and uh, 
you know, use enough salt because if you don't get enough salt, it's going to be bad. Use salt, okay. spice, and lime. And then you're cooking. Then you're cooking. Nice. I just have one quick thing because you yes. said that thing about trilogies of trilogies and so I'm thinking about Star Wars. Star Wars. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is maybe nothing, but I think it does speak to why those last two stanzas work really well together. And it goes along with our conversation about the ordering of the stanzas and stuff, which is that the we you also touched on this, that that first one is sort of like desire and the second one is a little bit like rebuke. Gently, but they sort of seem to have that relationship to each other that I want to be. And then there's that sort of undercutting saying what and but there's this thing in Star Wars because George Lucas made this comment, something to the effect of it's like poetry. They rhyme each stanza rhymes with the last one in talking about the structure of the films. I think it's while he was making the first prequel. So the Phantom Menace. This led to this guy on the internet creating this super detailed thing that he calls the ring theory about all of these reflections and connections between Star Wars films. And the idea is that they don't necessarily match up like the first one of the first trilogy to the first one of the second trilogy, even though there are ways that they connect. But the most powerful connections, according to this internet theorist, and this is like a pretty widespread thing because he did a big deep dive on it called the ring theory of Star Wars is that the real reflections are between the third in the first trilogy and the first of the second trilogy, the second of each trilogy, and then the first of the first trilogy and the third of the second trilogy. So it's like a mirror image. So A New Hope matches up with Revenge of the Sith, Attack of the Clones matches up with The Empire Strikes Back, and uh, Return of the Jedi matches up with The Phantom Menace. And if you look at the lines... In these two stanzas, what's interesting is they don't necessarily match up one, first line to first line, second to second, but first to fourth, second to third, third to second, and fourth to first, they do seem to me at least to be more connected that way. Because if you look at I want to be bruised by God and the gears notch in the engine's wheel, God can be seen as like the watchmaker theory of God or the engine that drives the universe. I want to be strung up in a strong light and singled out and the stars start out on their cold slide through the dark. It's the line about light and singled out and the stars in the dark. I want to be stretched like music wrung from a dropped seed then matches with and the caster beans with their little earrings of death say what to me. So it's the seed and the beans. And then I want to be entered and picked clean and the wind says what to me what but wind and air could enter the human body and pick you clean. So there is this sort of mirroring of the lines that way that I find interesting. And I literally only got there <laughs> because you said that thing about trilogies of trilogies. But I think it is another level on which those two stanzas can feel sort of connected and in conversation with each other that is more advanced than if they just were like one two three four one two three four because it's not like you feel like you're going through two lists but it does have that resonance whoa that was my mind is blown um, like a death star like a death star wow damn that's so cool um very cool a about star wars i gotta watch all six of them again there's eight now i know i know Sorry. i know i know I know. I don't know how the ring theory incorporates this third trilogy. I have no comment on that or really the details of it other than that thing. That's the cool part. The rest of it's like, yeah, it's a bunch of movies about space wizards. Like they all do the same space wizards. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, ring theory aficionados. Uh, 
Yeah. Oh, man. I love that. That is so cool. Um, I have nothing to say except that I love it, and I will be thinking about that for quite some time. Thanks, George um, Lucas. Thanks, George Lucas. You really got us through Charles Wright's clear night, as I knew you would. All right. Let's read it again. Let's do it. Clear Night by Charles Wright. Clear night, thumb top of a moon, a backlit sky. Moon fingers lay down their same routine on the side deck and the threshold, the white keys and the black keys. Bird hush and bird song, acacia flower falls. I want to be bruised by God. I want to be strung up in a strong light and singled out. I want to be stretched like music wrung from a drop seed. I want to be entered and picked clean. And the wind says what to me? And the castor beans with their little earrings of death say what to me? And the stars start out on their cold slide through the dark. And the gears notch and the engines wheel. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this, please, please write a review on iTunes or at the very least, rate us. You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book-related news at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking. You can also follow me at hot sauce boxed or Jack at Jack Rossiter Munn. If you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed, think we got something wrong, have a new idea for a topic we should tackle or a work we should discuss, please let us know tweet at us or shoot us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com.